on. I'm on three seats. <laughs> Look, there goes the game. You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Phoebe Harms, and thanks for joining us. Tonight, we hear a quick election update in Tompkins. It was really amazing to see so much support. Try to find that sixth degree of separation. Everyone's got something, or you have, you know, like the neighbor that you're like, oh my God, they did that cool thing, but that's never written anywhere. Hear from artist and activist Boots Riley. In order to change the balance of power. And meet the new sustainability director in Ithaca. The city is going to actually develop a lot of information so, so people can see this. But up first, let's hear what's going on in the Ithaca area with our community beat. The Ithaca City School District Board of Election agreed on a $145 million budget for the 2021 through 2022 school year. Work on this bill began early last year with the goal of addressing the impact COVID-19 has had on the school district. The bill will require final approval during the annual community referendum next month. New York State bars can stay open past midnight starting tomorrow, April 19th, announced Governor Cuomo on his Twitter. As the part of a gradual reopening plan, the governor is allowing establishments to stay open for another hour from their previous closing times. Although an official announcement has not been released through the governor's website yet, a press release is expected tomorrow with potentially new details about restaurants as well. A collision of two boats on Cayuga Lake has sent two people to the hospital. The accident occurred on the lake near Myers Point in Lansing on Wednesday afternoon. One fishing boat collided with a much smaller metal boat. The two people in the fishing boat were not injured, while the two people who were in the smaller one were taken from the scene in ambulances, with one individual later flown via helicopter to a hospital. No more information about this accident has been made available since then. The post office in downtown Ithaca will remain at its current location on North Tioga Street for at least five years after a long-term lease was negotiated by the town of Ithaca and the U.S. Postal Service. Announcing the lease through a press release, Senator Chuck Schumer added that the new agreement puts Ithaca's businesses, organizations, and residents first and acknowledges the economic importance of the post office's convenient location in the community. The post office has been in that location since 2000. 52% of people in Tompkins County have received at least one dose of the coronavirus vaccine. 31% of people in Tompkins County are now fully vaccinated. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, a person is fully vaccinated two weeks after they've been given the single dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or the second shot of either Pfizer or Moderna. As of Sunday morning, the Tompkins County Health Department reported six new positive COVID-19 cases and nine individuals were released from quarantine. That makes 81 known active cases in the county. 
the shooting took place on Friday night on Spencer Road, making it the third time in four months that this area has reported shots fired. The police department announced that no one was injured because of the shootings, the shots were fired from a moving car, and that the incident occurred just before 11.30pm. The IPD is asking anyone with information to contact them through one of the following. The police dispatch number 607-272-3245, the police administration number 607-272-9973, the police tip line number 607-330-0000, an email policeinfo at cityofithaca.org or the anonymous tip line address www.cityofithaca.org slash IPD tips. For Bridget Bright, I'm Celine Tadar, WICV News. What was the result of that Tompkins legislature special election? What elections are coming up in Tompkins County and Ithaca? Correspondent George Christopher has the answers. After a tense and nail-biting count, the special election for the Tompkins County Legislature's 2nd District seat has ended, with Leslie Schill defeating Veronica Pilar by a narrow five-vote margin. Schill will hold the seat vacated by Anna Kellis for the remainder of the term, which ends at the end of the year. Schill declared victory on her Facebook page, calling the election an amazing and humbling experience. Schill was sworn in on April 6th, with her family standing alongside her. As for Schill's opponent, Dr. Veronica Pilar made clear her career in politics was not over. We spoke with Dr. Pilar about her reaction to the election and her future in Tompkins County. So I am really proud of the campaign that we ran out of my team. Um, and I think it was, even though we didn't win, we didn't win the seat, um, it was really amazing to see so much um, support and sort of shifting of the conversations going on um, during the election process and the campaign process. Pilar confirmed that she would seek the Democratic nomination for the seat in the general election this fall, setting up a rematch between herself and the now incumbent Schill. All 14 seats on the Tompkins County Legislature will be up for re-election this fall, as will five seats on the Ithaca Common Council. With four of the five Common Council incumbents retiring, this could set up contentious primary campaigns. Pillard did express an openness to coordinating with other progressive candidates, including declaring her support for second ward candidate Phoebe Brown. WICB reached out to Ms. Shield to participate in the story, but she could not be reached. Stay tuned to WICB News and Ithaca Now every Sunday for continued coverage of Ithaca and Tompkins County politics. For WICB News, I'm George Christopher. This is Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Phoebe Harms. Last year, Ithaca Now explored the idea of six degrees of separation. Due to the pandemic, that series was cut short. News director Jay Bradley reached out to Sarah Herbakowitz to put a conclusion to the story and find that sixth connection. Last year, many Ithaca Now episodes featured that same jingle, the intro to our reporter Sarah Herbakowitz's series, Six Degrees. Six degrees of separation is the idea that all people are six or fewer social connections away from one another. Whether a cousin, a second cousin, a friend of a friend, or even a Facebook friend, everyone, according to this theory at least, is only six connections away. I wanted to use this theory to connect the people of Ithaca, New York, through random phone book interviews. It's now been over a year since the last episode aired, one ongoing pandemic later. I caught up with Sarah over a call to look back on this project and give it some closure. Because that sixth degree, 
never aired. I recorded the sixth one literally like the day before spring break, I think two days before. And then I had like midterms. I was like, oh, I'll do it after spring break. Like I'm really stressed right now. But that spring break never ended the way she expected. Ithaca, like most other schools, did not come back for that spring semester. Sarah graduated and is now working as a reporter at WENY. And between her busy schedule, anchoring and producing, it's just, I feel like I haven't even had a minute to think about it. So I just like go and then, you know, and everything's changing all of the time and that's fine. So let's walk you through her journey up to this point. Anyways. Anyway. Let's get into this. Let's talk about six degrees. A lot of people would say it's a crazy idea to just reach out to random people hoping to make connections. I remember sitting down with our advisor, Jeremy Menard, and telling him this idea and wanting to film it on video. And I was like, I could go to a coffee shop with them. Like I could do this, this, and this. He was like, Sarah, listen to yourself a little bit. Like, I appreciate your enthusiasm, but you're also like a 20 year old girl that wants to meet up with strangers like every week. And I was like, you know what? You're right. So I started it on the phone. And I remember I was like, how can I make this the most random? And I was like, a phone book would be perfect. And I quickly realized that phone books don't exist anymore. A surprise to me too. Like I called the phone book company and they were like, really told me like, no, we don't list the white pages anymore. It's only online. So then she had to get creative. So then I was like, okay, maybe I'll just start dialing random numbers. And I kept getting error like voicemails. And then I tried Googling random numbers on white pages and it was, it wasn't really working for me. It was harder than I thought it would be uh, to get someone to talk to me. Before going back to her original idea, just in a different color. So I went back to the phone book and I went through the yellow pages, which is like businesses. I was like, I'm going to call a business and we'll start there because I just need one. That's all I needed to start. I closed my eyes and I flipped through the phone book and I pointed and I called. It was the first call and I called Jean's Barbershop and it turned out to be the best interview. I think the first episode is still always going to be my favorite episode um, because of just how it it worked exactly. And then it continued for five more episodes. She met Mina the Barber from Jean's Barbershop. Hello. Hi, Mina. This is Sarah. Hi there. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, pretty good. And then after her conversation, she had to figure out how to get to the next story. Who should I, I asked them, I was like, who do you think I should speak to next? Like, who do you know that you're like, wow, they have a story you need to tell because everyone's got something or you have, you know, like the neighbor that you're like, oh my God, they did that cool thing. But that's never Mm -hmm. written anywhere. That's never, you know, it's just kind of a community known thing. And that's what I really wanted. Those little like nuggets of um, just like personal stories. And so truly I was like, who should I talk to next? And they'd be like, oh, I'm friends with so-and-so and they do the X, Y, and Z. And, and that's it. That's it. But the problem was, or the stress was, and it always worked out, but the stress was, what if that person didn't want to talk to me? That would be the end. Like, <laughs> um, but luckily they all did. Um, so it continued very well. So she ended up from Mina to one of her customers. And so she was like, oh my God, this guy, Kyle, I've known... I cut his grandfather's hair. She said that you were a big customer of hers and I should definitely talk to you next. I always got my hair cut at Jean's Barbershop and, you know, I've been going there my entire life. I I think I've probably gotten maybe six total haircuts outside of Jean's Barbershop my entire (laughs) life. She was like, I think he wrestles. And I was like, okay, sounds good. Um, And I Googled him and 
he is like a world champion wrestler. Like he was training to go to Tokyo this year. I really just, I, I, I really fell in love with the sport because I, I knew that the effort that I put in directly translated to the result. Um, and so I was like, okay, this should be like totally easy to get in touch. We had a great conversation. And again, I looked into focusing on that humanity because a world champion athlete, there's so much there, right? That meets the eye. There's right there. But that's not what I wanted. I wanted, you know, this humanity aspect, things people don't really see. And he was really straight with me about, you know, all of his wrestling and growing up in Ithaca and Lansing, um, but really focused too on how he's a new father and that's his biggest challenge. And I feel like that's something that every, you know, parent can relate to even. And from there, after haircutting to wrestling, the topics kept changing. Yes. Every switch was a big one like that. They, none of them felt connected, even though somehow they were. Um, and Megan was my next interview and she also lives in Ithaca because I was kind of going around the area. And she always, she told me, she was like, growing up, I hated English class and now she's an author. And she was like, so she had like message for students and it was really sweet and just her love of the area. Um, she ended up writing for American Girl Doll. And then right around the time I interviewed her, she had a Disney Channel original movie coming out based on one of her books. I told them, hey, you're Disney, do whatever you want. <laughs> and so that they, they, you know, transform it into a movie. It's really quite a thrill to like um, go to the movie set of something that came from like, you know, your heart and your brain. And it was just the coolest thing that all of this was coming from Ithaca, New York. And after that, um, she was like, you should talk to my friend Sherman. And I was like, who is Sherman? Uh, she goes, oh, he wrote a song a while ago. You might be too young to know it. About half of what I released got on the charts. And wow. one song in particular became a big hit. We get it almost every night. It's called Dancing in the Moonlight. I don't know if you ever heard that. I know the song. Yeah. Well, anyway, so... I was like, are you kidding? Uh, uh, so then I was really pumped. I interviewed Sherman. He lives in Ithaca. And he was so, like, passe about it all. I was like, so you wrote, like, tell me about it. Like, tell me about everything. He was like, yeah, you know, we did that. And I was like... <laughs> Sherman, come on, like, give me some more. Uh, no, but he was awesome. And I got to find out, you know, why he wrote that song. Like, what does it mean? Like, what does everyone dancing in the moonlight signify to him? And it was this beautiful story that he kind of went through some trauma in his life. Um, and he told me when he was sitting in the hospital afterwards, uh, he had just, you know, he was like, I wish for a better world where everyone was just dancing in the moonlight and nice to each other. And I thought that was so beautiful. And now every time that song comes on and there was like that TikTok remake that everyone listened to for a while, it makes me smile because it's like, I know a little bit of a secret about it. Like I know why and I, you know, and it's something you wouldn't expect to come out of Ithaca, New York, or they started as a band at Cornell too. And then... She got to be one degree away from some even bigger names. So the next guy I spoke to was Bob. And Bob is an ex-Navy pilot who focused in aerobatics, which is the when you flip over, things like that. Like that was his focus. So that's the kind of guy Bob was. And so he 
ended up flying for a charter company, Ithaca, and then owning one for a little mm-hmm. while. And something I didn't even think about, but Ithaca, the airport is very close to New York City's airport. So if you're flying a private plane, or if you're an important person that wants to fly in a private plane, it's not uncommon for you to, you know, charter a plane from Ithaca to get to where you kind of want to go, um, especially if speakers came to Cornell, anything like that. So Carl Sagan was a frequent customer. Uh, I left Chartair and started my own company. One of my first customers were um, Jane Fonda and Tom Hayden. One time, and we flew the whole Republican leadership out to California. Newt Gingrich was the Speaker of the House. Yeah, he was like, he literally told me. You know, just about anybody you can name, we've flown uh, at some point or another. All of these people, all of these connections, just a few degrees of separation away from musicians, politicians. And it's all in Ithaca, too. And it was all just like friend of a friend of a friend. I couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't believe it. I felt so lucky to be able to talk to all these people. And they didn't understand why because they were like i don't know you know like like sherman and bob are retired so they were like i don't know i got time (laughs) but you're cool um and i think that's you know why i love what i do so much in an era of robocalls and not answering if you don't recognize your caller id she made it work if they didn't answer sarah says she went through email to arrange it had the previous connection let them know, or she left a voicemail. But these connections made that extra push worth it. And each one had something different to teach through the moments that they chose to share. Mina's determination to get a job as a female barber, Kyle being on this world stage but still finding the time to learn to be a father, Megan's push to follow your passion, Sherman's message to keep looking for beauty in life, and Bob showing how adventures can really just take you anywhere. And that's if I boil it down, what all of them kind of come to. And I didn't expect to learn things. I didn't expect, you know, I didn't, I went into these conversations and I had no idea what to expect, but it was one of my favorite experiences is going through this whole, this whole six degrees journey. And, you know, now I'm still, I'm still in touch with a lot of them, you know, or friends on Facebook or things like that. So. It's really cool. But what about that sixth episode, that last final degree of connection? Well, it was with an Ithaca College professor. And that, you know, mini lesson to boil it down to is that uh, everyone, no matter how, and this kind of wrapped it up too, is she had talked about some students that she taught and some of her experience. And she basically was saying that everyone might be different, but everyone's a little bit the same and finding where those things connect and those chances are really cool. And I know I'm being vague because I didn't give that story, but it just seemed strange to present a story that was so, didn't factor COVID in at all because so much has changed in the past year um, that I feel like it wouldn't be fair to give someone's take on life now to release it now when it was something that happened before a pandemic that altered a lot, whether it's, you know, in the community, in their professional career at Ithaca College or anything like that. With the changes going on with Ithaca College and the pandemic, that story probably would not be the same as when it was first told. So while we won't be airing it, in a way, Sarah herself acts as that sixth degree. Her experience going through the area, hearing these stories, 
and now being the thread connecting them and then carrying that experience into her daily reporting now, I think that wraps up the series quite well. I think even now more than ever, it's still storytelling reporting is all about those connections, about people's experiences um, and kind of when we're all undergoing such stress um, and such unknown circumstances, it's being able to rely on one another and know where we're all a little bit the same um, and kind of finding as cheesy as all of this sounds, it is true. I promise it is from my heart of just, you know, everyone's got a story and that's kind of the baseline of all of this is everyone does have a story and everyone's connected a little bit in some way or another, especially in Ithaca, but everywhere. Um, you know, if I wanted to, I could add someone connect me to someone in someone's state, you know, see how far I could go, but kind of wanted to see how much could be found in such a little space. Um, and that's kind of, you know, I'm a hyper local news reporter now. And so that's really cool to be able to bring that forward in the stories that I do every day. Um, but I don't know where this will go next. You know, maybe I'll do another, another six degrees series here again, or where I go next or with interviewees, who knows? I just loved it so much that people were so real with me and they literally didn't know me. They had no idea who I was. I was a random number calling your phone saying their friend told me to call them. <laughs> Six Degrees Between Us All can be found on the podcast section of our website, WICB.org, or on Spotify. You can give Sarah a follow over on Twitter at WENY Sarah TV to see her work in local news. She says that once things calm down a bit more, She'd love to talk with her Six Degrees connections again, maybe over coffee. More of the moral of the story was that we're all a little bit connected. We all have something to share. As cheesy as that is, yes, it was for a podcast, but it's just really cool to know your community and know that really rings true that everyone has a story if you want to put the time into it um, and kind of dig a little bit. For WICB News, I'm Jay Bradley. We'll be back in just a moment. Have you ever been at the dinner table when a friend or family member begins a political debate? Have you ever wanted to join in but just didn't know how? Now there's a podcast that can help you navigate the complex world of politics. Join me, Alyssa Spady, on VIC's newest podcast, Policy Unplugged, as I set out to help you navigate different policies going through Capitol Hill. Tune in each week for a new topic so that you can debate politics with facts, not fiction. To listen, go on Spotify or one of your podcasting apps of choice and search VIC Radio Policy Unplugged. WICB's podcast network includes album reviews. Simone's version opens with a reticent, down tempo, a cappella vocal track that leaves the listener on the edge of their seat. Music theory. Da 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 da. That's also the notes of Got Me On My Knees. All Things The Great White Way. The melody of the song slowly but surely steps up. It's like her hopes and her dreams are like surging. Check out our latest episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Anchor. Search WICB Presents. You're listening to Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Phoebe Harms. Cornell and Ithaca College recently teamed up for a conversation with artist and left political activist Boots Riley. Correspondent Alyssa Spady went to the event, hosted by the Cornell Industrial and Labor Relations Worker Institute and the Park Center for Independent Media, to hear about the connections between art and seeking political justice and change. 
This past week, students and the Ithaca community were treated to a discussion with Boots Riley, a singer, producer, screenwriter, and director of the critically acclaimed film Sorry to Bother You. Hosted by Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations and the Park Center for Independent Media, the event is part of the annual ILR Union Days, a series of events highlighting labor issues. This year's focus was on the intersection between the arts and labor. Riley was born into a family of social justice organizers who taught him the importance of using his voice to create change, and that your voice can be channeled into whatever mode you think is best to get your message across to people. Riley first started his social justice journey when he was just 14 or 15 years old, helping to organize a farm workers union in Central California. He learned then how art could be that vehicle for change. You know, to me, um, art uh, was something that, that obviously was an extension of the communication that was happening, but was something that you do in order to communicate what you're thinking, what you want out of life, what, you know, what, what uh, your passions are. At the event, Riley spoke about devoting himself to that mission. He first started the political hip-hop group, The Coup, and used their funky, punk, hip-hop soul sound as a vehicle to critique capitalism, American politics, police brutality, romance, and the disparities between race and social classes. During the event, he spoke about his film, Sorry to Bother You, and that his goal wasn't just to show people how the class struggle would play out in real life, but he wanted to tap more into how it feels. We're talking about juxtaposing one idea with the other so we can show that contradiction. I didn't want to just talk about it. I didn't want to have the characters having a discussion about it. I wanted to, um, I wanted to, to, to show how those ideas felt. The pandemic has brought a larger light towards the struggles of workers. Across the nation and the world, some are using the added attention to push their cries for better working conditions, pay, and benefits. Most recently, we have seen the push for a minimum wage hike by some political leaders and activists. At the same time as this, workers across the nation have begun to organize, trying to figure out if unionizing could get them a seat at the table when negotiating pay and working conditions. The most notable was the Alabama Amazon workers' protest in February. But Riley alluded to how these movements only look at the surface of the issue. Right now, a lot of what people think of as radical movements or progressive movements um, are kind of stuck in the idea of spectacle. He went on to explain how the most effective movements use the strike and increased militant moves coupled with a vision to not only reach their goals, but to create lasting change for the future. These movements, it wasn't, you know, we had, there, it was not only militant on the job organizing, militant union organizing, but oftentimes it was with a radical vision that said, we're doing this not just for higher wages right now, not just for benefits. We're doing this in order to change the whole economic system that we're in, in order to change the balance of power. Through historical context and relation to today, Riley was able to strike a closer-to-home note as well with his thoughts on students' roles in making change. His words come at a pivotal time for both universities, as the Open the Books campaign continues to call for transparency at IC, and Cornell graduate students call for the university to provide increased funding to support their research and their updated set of demands. Now, in the 60s, since things started getting focuses, focused on students, you started hearing radicals saying things, in the United States at least, saying things like, the students are the revolution. 
it was something that was historically inaccurate. The students are part of a revolution, but they aren't the revolution. His spirited conversation and immense knowledge of the history of the movement, as well as the various counter-movements that have grown and hindered it over the decades, showed his true belief that change can come if we learn from our mistakes in the past and press on. Riley gave encouraging words for those who are seeking to create change as well, saying, But if you, if what you have is a passion that says, we are taking this further, this is, a, this is being part of something larger, then people are going to join you. Riley warned, however, that the time is now to act, given the increased warm feelings of people towards creating change. We're in a, a time of uh, opportunity to move things forward in, in ways. And, and, and of course, we're going to have, we're going to have uh, setbacks. We're going to have problems. We're not going to win every uh, union vote that there is. But th we're going to come back and, and, and people are going to be more willing and we're going to keep fighting. We can make these connections of, of where we're organizing um, for power and make them with larger movements so that folks see where other people see where power is and, and get inspired to have their movements connect to something real like that. Sending a message of hope and of increased activism during a time where the air is thick with the possibility for change, something that can be seen here in our own backyard at IC, on the East Hill, and across the nation. Reporting for WICB News, I'm Melissa Spady. This is Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm Phoebe Harms. The city of Ithaca announced last month that Luis Aguirre Torres has been hired as the Director of Sustainability. Joining the city's Department of Planning and Development, Torres has over 15 years of experience working nationally and internationally on nonprofit and business sectors in green technology, policy development and implementation, emissions reduction, green entrepreneurship, and more. News Managing Director Selene Tutar sat down to meet him and see what he's looking forward to doing with the position. The city shared five goals within the, um, the Green New Deal initiative. Can you share those and tell me a bit about what you have for um, your plans for them? Yeah, uh, you know, the, the city has, let me go back to the very beginning. I know that the question is very specific and you want to talk about the goals, but I believe that it's necessary to provide some context. Uh, the Green New Deal, you know, as it happened in Washington, D.C., as it happened in Ithaca, uh, has the intention of actually transforming society and transforming the relationship society has with the environment right now. Uh, in order to do that, we need to fully understand society. And as you know, uh, for the past two years, things have changed so dramatically. You know, we live in a practically different world today. And it has to do with the change of administration, but it has to do with many other things, you know, like we are all more woke, no, we're more aware of what's happening, we're more aware of injustice. And like right now, and two years ago, it wasn't true necessarily. I mean, people were talking about environmental justice and climate justice for many, many years, but now it's at the very core of every climate change initiative. So the fact that right now we're talking about climate justice changes a little bit the way we, we look at the Green New Deal. So uh, right now, the Green New Deal, it is a net zero strategy to achieve net neutrality by 2030 by having a mission-driven collaborative effort with the community of Ithaca and surrounding towns and cities uh, in, in order to actually achieve our goals. 
And our goals, is, uh, which is what, what you were asking, is they are certainly uh, achieve uh, net neutrality for government operations by 2025, uh, replace 50% of electric vehicles by 2025, but mostly net neutrality uh, by 2030. We also want to have uh, uh, you know, the, the whole community to participate and to engage. So we want everybody to take part of uh, what we are trying to do. And we need to make sure that when we are doing that, nobody is left behind. And, and, and I wanna emphasize that last part because it is not easy to understand what climate injustice actually means. Because we talk about it and we talk about it as if we, everybody understood what, what it meant. And, and when we assume that everybody understands, we also assume that everybody understands it in the same way. And, and it is not like that, it's very, very complicated. You know, for, for a really long time, I mean, and now we have the data to back it up, but for a very long time, we've had these uh, parts of the city that have been left behind where air pollution is, is greater than in other areas. I mean, you can actually measure uh, you know, parts per million, and you would see that the air quality in some parts of the city are not as good as, as in downtown, for example. And, and it, it is a very interesting case because downtown, you would think it's where most cars are, so the air quality should be better, but sometimes it's not. So we need to figure out why, and then we need to figure out, like when we, we try to set up new policies to make things better, we need to make sure that these policies are not going to alienate anybody, you know, that everybody can participate. So the Green New Deal is, is just that, and you know, that this new idea is to make things better, but work as a community to achieve that. And do you have any type of early plans that you have in mind, that you, or any deadlines that you have planned to get things done? Well, the entire planet has a deadline, right? <laughs> we, we, we all have a deadline at the end of the day, the, you know, there is this sense of urgency that has to do with the rising temperatures, of course. But uh, the federal government, which in April 22nd is going to announce uh, a new level of ambition in terms of uh, climate change goals, uh, you know, it's going to probably join the rest of the world that actually increased ambition in December last year as part of uh, the new pledge for uh, the, the climate summit in Glasgow this year. But right now, uh, the, the state of New York also has its own goals uh, for mid uh, next decade, like uh, but uh, for 2035, 2034, I, I don't know, remember. <laughs> uh, but the city decided to be more aggressive. Uh, so we do have a plan because in order to be aggressive, you need to be smart. You need to have a, a very good idea of how you can achieve things. And so, as I said, you know, our main goal is net neutrality by 2030. Uh, another important goal is to achieve climate justice and to live in a more just society by 2030. So in order to do that, we need to do a number of things. And we have a five-step, 10-year plan. The first one is gathering as much data as possible. We're gonna spend a lot of time going through everything that we have to all the statistics. We're gonna to try to find out, to characterize the entire community. We need to see how much electricity people are using. We need to see how much water people are using. We need to see which uh, communities have the best and the worst uh, air quality. We need to see how many cars are there. We need to see how many of those are electric. We need to see how many solar installations are there. So the first stage is, is data gathering. But we, we, we don't have all the time in the world, so we're gonna do it in a rush. We're gonna do it not in, in a rush as in like uh, not doing it 
thoroughly, but we're going to do it really fast. So we're going to put a lot of uh, human and economic resources to make it happen. Then second, what we're going to do is we're going to make this city the most efficient city in the world. I mean, our intention is to make sure that everything we do, we do it with the maximum level of efficiency. And that has to do with your electricity bill, with your water bill, but it also has to do with government operations, city operations, has to do with when and how we collect trash. You know, it has to do with a number of things. So that is the second part of the plan. And once we achieve maximum levels of efficiency, then we're going to start talking about two things that are very important. That I would mention them uh, as a sequence, but in reality, they're going to run in parallel. One of them is the decarbonization of the electricity. And what that means is uh, we're going to make sure that the grid and and where we get our electricity is going to be carbon free. There are many ways of achieving this. We do not depend entirely on the utility company. You know, it depends on the decisions that we make as community and as, as part of the government also, we have a lot to say there. So the reality is that we are gonna try to make sure that everybody starts using more and more renewable energy. So the goal would be for everybody to start using at some point 100% renewable energy, either because you have solar panels on your rooftops or because you are connected to a community solar program or because there is a community choice aggregation or any, any, any way of getting renewable energy. The city is going to actually develop a lot of information so, so people can see this uh, and find ways of, of participating in this organization effort. Then uh, the next stage is going to be electrification. Uh, we're going to have a, a, a very big push to electrify the entire city. And electrification, it, it is a very interesting thing because uh, a lot of people object to this. A lot of people object to this because they believe that, uh, for example, solar, uh, sorry, uh, natural gas appliances are much more reliable. And that has to do with people being used to using those rather than, than with them being more reliable. Uh, you know, all these technologies have been tested over and over and certified by institutes like Fraunhofer, for example, the maximum authority in, in terms of uh, certification of modern electric appliances. I mean, at the end, well, that's not all they do. That, that would be an unfair characterization, but, you know, they certify all these new technologies so we can actually use them as part of appliances. And uh, so we're going to do electrification and we're going to work with everybody so they understand the economic benefits, uh, the environmental benefits, and the personal benefits to it. So once we have that, you know, data gathering, efficiency, decarbonization, electrification, we're going to be reaching 2030 at that point. And our goal is that in that moment, if we achieve our goals, we're going to start pushing for negative emissions. So we're going to start trying to use uh, carbon sequestration technologies. We're going to use agricultural sinks, but we're also going to use carbon capture technologies. So the idea is uh, 2030 carbon neutrality, sure, but 2035, we're gonna have negative emissions. Extremely ambitious. And people will say it's crazy, it's impossible, but that's what we do. <laughs> you know, in climate change, you cannot go small. And nobody's changed the world by going, you know, at, eh, let's try this, you know. Whoever has changed the world has done it because they are very ambitious and, you know, we wanna be part of that. And you mentioned that in order to achieve these steps, you're going to need a lot of like manpower and a lot of resources. Um, do you have any plans to involve educational institutes like IC or Cornell or with the local businesses? We're absolutely relying on the community at Ithaca College and Cornell University. Uh, it's not that we're going to involve them. Without them, it's absolutely impossible. 
I mean, I would like to say, and I cannot speak for the city's finances. It's not my role to do that. And I cannot speak for, you know, in general, the overall decisions on, on how the city is managed. But what I can tell you is that we need to save money. There's not a lot of money. This is a post-COVID economy. So right now, efficiency has to do with how we use economic resources too. So in order to actually meet our goals and at the same time be very conscious of the finances uh, of the city, we're going to have to work with the community. But work with the community is not engaging in a city hall uh, conversation. I mean, we're really talking about, uh, sorry, in a town hall conversation. But what we are really talking about here is relying on those who have actually done it before. You know, Ithaca College, for example, has a, uh, has a very large use. I mean, I don't know what the percentage of renewable energy is, but as far as I knew, you were reaching 100%. So, uh, I mean, you already ha have done a massive transformation in your facilities. So we want to know how you did it, and we're going to ask for your help. And Cornell, for example, has this uh, district heating system. They have a, a, an energy conservation project. They have uh, air source heating. So they have a lot of things, and, you know, the city can learn from them. What we do in the city is, is really convene, articulate, and then find ways of leading by example. So one of the things that we want is for the community to work better and to redefine this, this social contract, no? to, to redefine the way we relate to each other. So we don't only lead with example when we talk about technology or finances. We lead uh, you know, with example with, in, in the sense that we are redefining our relationship to everybody in Ithaca. And, you may think, you know, these are big words and, you know, that's what politicians say, but, but it really isn't. Uh, I am convinced that that's the only way to move forward. And I believe that, you know, if you ask anybody else in, in City Hall, they will tell you the same thing. There is a new way of looking at the community. And, you know, it's very simple because we are part of the community. So, you know, we just take on that hat rather than the government representative. And with so much to rely on to the community and um, you know the the government, do you have any type of challenges that you're expecting um, that you're preparing for? Um, any roadblocks that might come up along yeah. the way? Yeah, I mean there are a, a ton of them, <laughs> like a, a really large number that I can tell you. Uh, I mean, whenever you you have such an ambitious uh, goal uh, and you have a ten year roadmap to achieve that you need to also do some sort of risk analysis. You know, you need to figure out what the main roadblocks are gonna be along the way. Some of them are political, some of them are social, some of them are economic, some of them are financial, which is not the same as economic. And a lot of, uh, a lot of these have been identified, but I can imagine that we only have a list that includes half of what we're gonna find in the way. But, you know, we're gonna find resistance from the community. You know, natural gas has been really good to us. Like it really has. And the grid, as it is right now, does not have the problems that you find in Texas or in California. No, you don't have blackouts. And, and at the end of the day, it works. And a lot of people are going to question, why do you want to change that if it works? And the answer is because the planet is burning. <laughs> so we need to change it. Because if we continue with emissions, you know, it's going to be even worse than just having a power outage. <laughs> Uh, but but we're, we know that we're going to find that as, as resistance. Also, at the heart of everything is the economic model that we have. So we really are going to change the economic model. And when you do that, 
Some people feel uh, affected and some people are actually affected. So part of a, a huge part of what we're trying to do is to create jobs. I mean, we're looking at this as a job creation uh, exercise. So it has to do with economic development. It has to do with job creation. It has to do with retraining, resetting the workforce. And there are organizations already doing that. So we're going to work with them. We're going to look at innovation as a way of promoting economic development. So that is a different angle that we had not taken before. So, yeah, I mean, things are, are, are different. And honestly, things are going to be awesome. It's <laughs> a great way to look at it. Um, you said that there are people who are obviously a bit hesitant about some changes, um, but there are also a group of people who are passionate and would like stricter changes. For example, Sunrise Movement recently had a pro uh, protest. I think it was end of March. Um, and they were required. They were demanding for a stronger code um, when it comes to energy. Do you have any comments about that, or how do you plan to work with um, groups that are local? Oh, I'm I'm working with them. I it, it is funny because I arrived a day before that demonstration uh, and to my new position, and and it was interesting not to see what they want. Uh, it is fascinating, and honestly, it's fantastic to see young people involved because that's what we needed. I mean, people were for so long, uh, you know uncharacteristically detached from the climate movement that you know it was something to worry about and now it's it's the opposite there's a lot of pressure to perform and perform well and you know here's the thing young people are like the group of people that we have in Ithaca they're incredibly smart they're very well informed and they have a lot of energy but if you combine that with experience you know it's a really good combination so I've been in this movement for 20 years which is more than some of these guys have been alive but that doesn't mean I know everything, and that doesn't mean I, I have the energy they have. So I need to work with them, but they also need to work with me. You know, and, and apart from Sunrise Movement, there is a lot of other organizations that have the same level of energy, and the focus is entirely different. Now, Sunrise Movement, they want more stringent uh, energy codes. Uh, they want us to demand carbon neutrality if we could tomorrow. But the whole thing is, it, it has to do with, I agree with them. I mean, if we could have it tomorrow, I, I promise you I would do it. If I could just ban all, you know, internal combustion vehicles, I would do it. But but I don't think I can. And the reason I can't is because we need to consider that this is an effort for the entire community. It's not just for young people. I mean, the era of environmentalism, when we think that we're going to leave this world a better place than we found, is wrong. I mean, that one is gone. It has changed. It's not life after death. It's life before death. So now we're looking at the planet that we can all enjoy. So this sense of urgency is not only theirs. It's mine. It's yours. It's everybody's. What we want is to have a, a better place to live in tomorrow. But we need to make sure that we understand the economic consequences of that. That doesn't mean we're not going to do it. It just means we're going to do it in a way that will not affect and bankrupt the city or bankrupt a lot of families. Think about, for example, all the people that lost their jobs during uh, the pandemic. And now you tell them, well, we need to electrify. We need to switch your appliances. No more natural gas. You're going to have to invest $70,000 to retrofit your home. That's precisely climate injustice. You cannot do that. You can demand renewable energy, but a lot of people are not educated on the subject. And they need to be comfortable with this change. So you need to explain it to them. You need to educate and you need to sit with people until they understand and feel comfortable. So there is a massive education campaign. 
and, and there are a lot undergoing, you know, like uh, Cooperative Extension uh, at Cornell, that they're fantastic at doing this. You know, they're reaching out every corner. But we also need to reach out beyond that. And part of what we're doing that I haven't mentioned is we're actually partnering with other regions, other areas. I mean, the entire Southern Tier, the Finger Lakes, Central New York, we're going to be working with everybody. Think about what happened in the pandemic, you know, like single individual actions help nothing at all. Like you could have stayed home, but if everybody didn't stay home, we wouldn't have defeated the virus. Uh, and so it is collective coordinated action. Same thing for climate change. So, so when you want changes, you need to look at the other person's view. You need to stop assuming that whatever their beliefs are, are hardwired into their brain. There is a reason for that. And unless you understand that, you're not going to be effective at anything. So the new climate movement has that. You know, we are conscious, we're looking into this, but we're also trying to figure out the rationale behind people who think different from us. So we can either help them understand or they can help us understand their point of view. And um, your position is obviously a new position that uh, within the city. Um, how has it been to get adjusted to the position and working with the other departments? Oh, it's awesome. I mean, it really is. Uh, it's a brand new experience for me. I have I have been working at the federal level mostly, and uh, you know, it's different. You're talking about budgets that are like completely crazy, like billions of dollars. Uh, but what I have found here is people with heart, and that is beautiful. That is fantastic. All of my coworkers have invested interest in making this uh, a better place to live. Uh, they're all members of the community and they look after each other. It was, honestly, it was a beautiful exercise this particular week because a bunch of us got the second shot of the vaccine. And as you know, with the second shot, people are, you know, you feel kind of funny. And uh, everybody was exchanging emails, like, I hope you're doing well. You know, it, it was very nice to see that. And a lot of them don't know me yet because there's a lot of people in the building, so I had met everybody. But I got emails from people, like, I hope you feel better. And... And, and that is really nice. I uh, I think the position is well accepted. They, and also they are respecting uh, what is it that the position is, is meant to be and do here. Uh, so even though I am proposing things that are different from the way they look at policy, the way they look at the city, the way they look at, you know, collaboration, they're going with it. Obviously it has to make sense. And obviously I need to work to convey uh, the rationale behind all of these proposals. But, you know, it, it's been really nice and a fantastic experience. I, I really couldn't be happier, to be honest. Good to hear. Those are all the questions I have. Do you have anything that you'd like to add? If you were to map out everything that needs to happen for things to work in Ithaca, you know, you start with society, right? You start with society getting along, not being divided. Then you continue with these artificial divide between the sunrise, young, smart, informed people and the old, not so wise people, because that doesn't exist. You know, we're a bunch of citizens that want the world to be better and that's it. So we, we, we eliminate that divide. The other thing is we need to think about academic institutions as our, some of our main allies, because climate change is a science-based thing. So if we reach out to, to you guys, I'm not talking about only technological knowledge. I'm talking about, you know, political science. I'm talking about arts. I'm talking about entertainment. I'm talking about everything. You know, what we do has to do with everything. So we are redefining the relationship with the academic community. But also, we know the service industry with everybody. And so 
when I say that the Green New Deal changed, I, I mean it. It is, you know, the phrase I've been using a lot is mission driven. And, and that is a reference to, to the moonshot, you know. 1962, the president says we're going to make it to the moon in, in, in 10 years. And nobody knew how, but we did it. So this is a moonshot for us. So this is like, it's not that we don't know how, but, you know, some things are still to, figure, to be figured out. Uh, but it's a mission-driven, coordinated, collaborative effort. You know, and we are here to convene, to coordinate, but the community needs to be part for it to be collaborative. And that's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past stories, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear full shows anywhere, anytime. Also, subscribe to The Latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager Sam Ives, Programming Director Lou Barron, and News Social Media Coordinator Gabrielle Topping. Thank you. Ithaca Now is produced by News Director Jay Bradley with assistance from News Managing Director Celine Tutar and this week's correspondents George Christopher and Alyssa Spady. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at wicb.org. We will be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Phoebe Harms, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.